Hi, I'm George A. Milton, America's Failure Coach. Welcome to the Failure is Not the Problem podcast. Listen, you know as well as I do that failure is a problem for most people. Why is that? In a single word, conditioning. Conditioning is simply training. You have been taught that failure has to be negative. I am here as your personal coach to help you relearn how to accept your failures and turn those experiences into positive mindset, change, and success. Look, motivation, empowerment, and inspirational stories, they're all well and good, but that's not what keeps us going. That's not what's going to change your life, and that's not what's going to move the needle in your health, your wealth, your happiness, your abundance, or your ability to be able to help other people make a difference. What keeps us going, what produces results in our lives is balance, not success alone. You have to develop a healthy balance between success and failure. It does not have to be one or the other. And when you can get yourself past the things that stop you and hold you back, that's when you'll thrive and that's when you will finally live a whole life. You'll be much happier. I will help you recondition your mindset by exchanging ideas and strategies to guide you in making transformation so that you can thrive. But most of all, I'm going to give you something every single episode which you can utilize to create change in your life. Failure is about learning how to embrace your challenges and taking 100% responsibility for your life. Most people hate to talk about anything that has to do with failing. It's like Uncle Bruno. We don't talk about it. Nothing good comes from talking about it, right? Bruno is a fictional character who appears in one of my favorite Walt Disney animation pictures, Encanto. It all boils down to the fact that Bruno's habit of predicting terrible events in people's future, which would later come to pass, made people anxious and worry of him, ultimately leading to him being ostracized. This is very similar to how people respond to us when we fail. You see, parents feel anxious when their children fail. Leaders, family, and friends often ostracize us when we fail. Or at best, they patronize us because they don't know how to respond. But just like with Bruno, who had a very special gift, when viewed correctly, failure is a special gift. But if we don't respond in the right sorts of ways, then obviously it doesn't turn out real well. But it's all about how you view your perspective and that sort of thing when it comes to failure. Now, how can we make failure okay to talk about while making it fun and failure-tastic? Well, you need to learn to laugh when you fail. Don't take your failures so seriously always. You know, allow your failures to educate you on your next step of your journey. You know, most of us know what fun is, but what is a failure-tastic moment? You know, I created that word and had it trademarked. So a failure-tastic moment is, is when you've tried to accomplish a goal or become successful while pursuing an endeavor, but you faced failure after failure after failure. Like when I was trying to become an army officer from being an enlisted guy, it literally took me several years. You know, instead of quitting though, I never gave up because I never gave up. I not only accomplished becoming an officer, but accomplished a lot more. So some would say, man, that's fantastic, right? No, 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 no. That's what we call a failure-tastic moment at Failure is Not the Problem LLC. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, George A. Milton, America's Failure Coach. And today I want to introduce you to an amazing technical sergeant within the confines of the United States Air Force. Jonathan, how are you doing today, sir? Doing well, George. Thanks for having me. Man, it's so good to see you. Uh, before we get started here, won't you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you're doing within the confines of the Air Force, and all that sort of stuff, so they'll have an understanding of who we're talking to here today. 
Sure, sure. So I am active duty Air Force. I'm a technical sergeant. Um, I'm initially from East Texas. My first duty station was in San Antonio. And 11 years later, I am still in San Antonio. Uh, so I, I thought I was going to see the world. That's not necessarily what happened. I just learned a little bit more about Texas. By trade, I'm a medic. Uh, I've, I've since specialized in neurodiagnostic technology. Uh, that's a very specialized field for Air Force and Navy. Currently, I'm an instructor. I'll be transitioning to Brook Army Medical Center, but I'll tell you, it's a very small crew field, and between the Air Force and the Navy, there are less than 50 of us. So moving from emergency medicine to a highly specialized field, I have a very different perspective on how, as an airman, as a technical sergeant, I mean, just how I operate, how I uh, lead my troops and teach my students and We'll see what the future has for me at, at BAMC, but there's there's going to be a lot I look forward to handling. Wow. wow. Now, look, uh, I just learned something new today. Uh, when we were conversing here about a month or so ago, I wasn't tracking this, but I did not hear you say you're from East Texas, did I? You absolutely did. <laughs> okay. Where specifically in East Texas? Longview. You must be kidding me. Longview Lobos. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I was a pirate. I was, oh, well, you know, it's the other side of town. I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Texas, not far from Tyler, Texas. What a small world. <laughs> <laughs> it is a small world. And I did not, I don't know why we didn't talk about that. Typically, I will always ask someone where they're from. But I want the audience to know is that this is the first time I heard you say that. Jacksonville is not just a hop, skip, and a jump, as we say in these Texas language from where we grew up. That is unbelievably amazing. Goodness gracious, dude. Well, I knew there was something about you I liked, and I see why you came out your house now. <laughs> so my daughter, Candace, and uh, her husband, James, are actually former airmen. They um, uh, came in, and Candace was, uh, was doing some high-speed stuff, and, and James, and that's kind of where they met, was here in, in San Antonio. So we have some, some Air Force folks within the confines of our family also. I mean, we're heavy Army. We had a couple of Navy and uh, a couple of Air Force personnel. but um, Well, the Air Force came from the Army. Well, yes, Army Air Corps. That's why you guys are so good at what you do, because uh, you were bred right. <laughs> all right, Jonathan, look, let's go ahead and get going there, Tech Storm. I know folks are excited about hearing all this high-speed experience you have, and I know I was impressed, and I'm glad to have folks like you uh, who are still wearing the uniform. So, uh, you know, just talking about failure and uh, how that can actually help us become successful and, and the kinds of things that you've actually done within the confines of the uh, United States Air Force. I just want to ask a few questions here just to kind of see what your thoughts are today in terms of, you know, being in uniform uh, currently. But, you know, can you share a special instance where uh, you faced a significant setback or failure and how did you initially react to that? Absolutely. Uh, when I enlisted into the Air Force, I had been recruited uh, specifically for pararescuemen. Now, at the time, I was in paramedic school and that's why they were particularly interested. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I, I gave it a thought, but I was fully committed. It wasn't until I got to MEPS that I found out I was colorblind and immediately disqualified. Uh, what? Yeah, and it, this was really disappointing for me. It wasn't necessarily that I had failed, but uh, talk about a huge setback. That was something I had trained for for 18 months. And I remember sitting at MEPS, I was sitting with the NCO in front of me, and I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to continue to enlist or if I was going to part ways at that point. For whatever reason, I decided I was going to serve. It was not the way that I wanted to serve. 
it was not what I had in mind for a significant period of time, but I chose to serve nonetheless. I had no idea what the future held, but I will say I, that was something I held on for a while because I had in my mind what I wanted to do. It just didn't work out that way. No, I, I think that's a great point. You know, text one asked me when, when you said that, uh, uh, it reminded me of a couple of things uh, that when I came in as an E1, also in the Army, uh, and oftentimes when we we talk about failures or challenges in the uh, uh, you know same vein, uh, so be it a failure, be it a challenge, and it had to be very challenging for you uh, to have actually gotten that that information. But what you remind me of is that when I came in the military initially as an E1, I actually wanted to be an officer. I was at basic training and thought, man, I could be an officer. I'm looking at all these officers running around. I'm thinking I could do that sort of thing, right? And um, it took me literally about six years to get from you know, where I was to where I wanted to be in order to be able to qualify to become an officer. So throughout that process, you know, a lot of night school, I mean, just, you know, weekends, I mean, but I'm on active duty. So everything worked out and uh, I was accepted into officer candidate school. And about two months before heading out, I was out playing combat soccer with some infantry guys, you know, during PT. And a yahoo stepped on my left foot and broke it in three places. <laughs> so... I called the uh, sessions command and said, look here, you know, got our situation. I'm going to have to try to, you know, get another class date uh, because uh, my foot's broken and I'm not going to be able to go to school. And uh, the commander says, you got one or two choices. You can uh, reapply. I said, okay, reapply. Does that mean like, you know, reapply for another class date? And he said, no, no, reapply for the whole program. I'm like, dude, it took me six years. So I'm not going to reapply. I said, what's the other option? And he said, well, you show up for school. So I actually went to school, their OCS. For 90 days, my left foot broken in three places. That's how badly I want it. So I understand very, very similarly, you know, the, you know how when you have a challenge and you want to try to get past that because you want to really, really serve, but that can actually ensue. But the lessons that I think you and I both learned is that we can actually share that kind of information with our soldiers. And I think that kind of kind of makes them better in the process. I mean, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, you and I both had those challenges, but we didn't let that stop us. If you had the opportunity to to share something along that line with some of your airmen who felt like they were failing or felt like you know the challenge was, was too large, how would you help them get past that mindset to where they could be successful? You know, that was the biggest lesson that I learned. No matter how much I wanted something, it didn't mean that it was going to happen. And I think that one of the biggest disservices we give to our young men and women is telling them, you can do whatever you want to do. Whatever you set your mind to, you can do it. But the honest, the God's honest truth is that that doesn't always happen. Now, how I dealt with that, it, it took a number of years. How I dealt with that failure, the obstacle, the challenge, whatever you want to call it, was, well, when I came to Christ, because I didn't know my identity or my purpose. And that's what people are seeking. That's what I always seek. I was seeking purpose for my life. I wanted to do something where I felt that I could offer value. And a lot of people, even in our service, who are wearing the uniform that have a clear purpose, they don't feel purposeful. So a lot of people tend to assign their purpose and their identity to a position, a career, um, uh, their role as a husband or a wife or a parent, you name it. Uh, but the reality is we can't do that. Let's say you are a soldier. You are on the front lines. You're in infantry. And like in many cases happen, you lose a, a limb. 
can you continue serving in that capacity? No. Does that mean you no longer have purpose? No, absolutely not. Their value does not change. Your value moving from position to career, it does not change. And so when I help people realize their purpose and their value is not limited by where they are in life, they begin to ask different questions. For instance, how can I add value to the lives of those around me today? What am I doing? I, I challenge my students to do that. It's a nine month program. People get very discouraged. And I ask, how are you offering value to those around you? And I usually bring this up when I hear a lot of complaining. Does complaining offer any value to the man or woman sitting next to you? Well, no, absolutely not. Nobody says, no, that, that fixes the problem. <laughs> it's really easy to say that there's a problem. It's a bit more difficult to come up with a solution to it. So when I begin to challenge people and remind them that it doesn't matter what they do, it doesn't matter where they go, they have an identity and they have a purpose, but they're not going to find it in their profession. You know, I like that. I like that quite a bit, to be, uh, to be honest. In fact, uh, the word purpose, uh, you know, I just recently read a book and it talked about um, finding one's ikigai, right? Ikigai is a Japanese word for guess what? Purpose. That's all that word means. So in that particular book, it chronicles five different areas, and they call them like blue zones, right? And one of those blue zone areas is uh, Okinawa, Japan. That's where, you know, they have, I guess, the largest number of centenarians. So in those blue zones, they're called blue zones because folks who live in those areas are 100 plus years of age. And when they were talking specifically to the folks in the Japanese area, they were asking them, I mean, gosh, I mean, what in the world has promoted your ability to live this long life? And, you know, they go into dietary kinds of things, uh, you know, physical kinds of things in terms of always moving, that sort of thing, you know, mindset. But they said that the, the biggest, you know, part of that was that they had a purpose, they felt as though, you know, their lives meant something. So the fact that they had purpose actually was the lead in all of those kinds of things, whether it was, you know, dietary, whether it was physical, whether it was movement, whether it was mindset. But I absolutely have to agree with, with everything you said. What I also like is how you said that if someone was actually injured, would they be able to continue serving? In most cases, no, uh, they, they would not. You're absolutely right. But here's what failure can do for you, or here's what challenges can do for you if you do it in the right sorts of way. It can actually help you change direction in life. It doesn't mean that your life is, is useless, right? I never wanted to be in the Army. I didn't come from a military family. And because I failed out of six colleges and universities, guess where I found myself? In Tyler, Texas. Sign it up, man. And in fact, I tried to get in the Air Force first and wasn't good enough. <laughs> I tried literally about three times to get in the Air Force. And I finally, you know, was able to get a, a test score high enough to get into the Army. And what was really interesting about that, the fact that I you know, was not good enough to get into the Air Force at that time, which actually motivated me to get into the Army, which actually put me in a situation whereby the military was exactly where I needed to be. Everything I had done up to that point. Nasty had prepared me to be in the military. Prior to the last unit I served with at the uh, one-star level, my five previous bosses, all two-star general officers, were all Air Force. All of them. So that's kind of how that worked out for me in terms of my purpose, my challenges, 
and changing direction in life. So interesting. You said uh, a moment ago that you are you're an instructor, and uh, I think we talked about that during the previous conversation. But in terms of the challenges that you are seeing within the confines of our military, uh, generally, but specifically the Air Force and leadership, I mean, what are some of the challenges or failures that you're actually seeing amongst the leadership that you think need to change in order to be able to help our uh, airmen, you know, be the people that they are uh, supposed to be? So I recently graduated with my master's in leadership from Ohio Christian University. And my my thesis was entirely over the Air Force's appraisal system, how we rate airmen and who we select to promote and why. What I'll tell you is that nobody felt like it was an effective system. Everyone that I interviewed, that ranges from officers, senior enlisted, we're talking chief master sergeants, all the way down to senior airmen. Although there were different perspectives, the recommendation was widely, it needs to change. Now, I haven't spoken to the Air Force about this, but the Air Force is changing it. I'll tell you that the large, just department of Air Force level, I think they're hitting the nail on the head. For instance, in the enlisted force structure, they, they harp on the four foundational competencies for airmen, and it's to develop yourself, to develop others, to develop ideas, and to develop the organization. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a fantastic model that they have. They have airmen leader qualities. There's 10 of them that we really need to focus on. That's how we should develop ourselves, others, ideas, and organizations. Structurally, we have a system. However, I don't know exactly how they plan to implement it because the issue really comes down to frontline supervision. There was an article recently posted from one of my professors who was investigating whether or not servant leadership actually existed within our core values. The ultimate argument was maybe not. Servant leadership is very important. And let me ask this question here. It's interesting that you would talk about that because, you know, when I came into the, the army, it wasn't about going into the army. The way it was labeled and termed at that point in time was going into the service, right? And I, I just think that, um, uh, and I don't know what your, your opinion is about this, but uh, my attitude and, and my opinion reference to this is that because of the way in which we do our recruiting, uh, we don't always talk about it from a service standpoint, service to the nation, service to themselves, service to the family, those kinds of things. We talk about it in terms of, you know, what you can gain out of being, you know, a military member. And, and look, I think it's both, right? There are tons of benefits that you're going to get from serving in uniform. But I think that uh, when it comes to leadership, we need, in my view, this has always worked for me, we need to make sure that we really focus on looking at uh, those servant qualities. Who was Muhammad Ali said that uh, service to others is the you know rent we pay for our room here uh, on the planet, man. And I, and I just think that we, we need to try to figure out how to get back to, I mean, holistically speaking, you know, all branches of the service where we talk more about service as opposed to, uh, you know, what one can actually gain. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I absolutely agree. There is an idea, it's something that I think transcends all cultures is the importance of service. In service, we, we often get to carry out our purpose. I'll tell you that the, the idea of servant leadership, even according to scholars, it's a biblical model. 
you've probably heard the saying that there's no greater love than to lay your own life down for your friend. That's in the Holy Bible. Jesus himself says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. There is so much value in serving others. And I, I don't know how you feel, George, but when I, I look at our culture, and it is so self-centered. We're always thinking about how can I benefit? Even in recruiting, you mentioned, people are really focused on, well, what can I get out of this? What's in this for me? Instead of what can I offer? I remember, wow, I, I, I remember this very clearly. I remember in basic training, um, in one of our classes, our instructors asked, who here joined because of the benefits? And George, I was one of 50 that did not raise their hand because I, I joined to serve. I wanted to serve. I didn't even know what the benefits were. <laughs> I was like, wow, I kind of feel out of place. Yeah. And like you said, don't, don't get me wrong. There are wonderful benefits. You know, the Air Force has paid for all three of my degrees and, and, and then some. But that's not why I'm here. And if anything, the benefits have enabled me and developed me to be a more effective leader. Now, going back to that same article I was telling you about, there was a, a statistic put out by the Air Force Personnel Center that technical sergeants manage 75% of our force. Now, I'll tell you, George, on a day-to-day, -day, it doesn't look like that. The majority of our technical sergeants don't feel like that. But I'll tell you, it is very real. And I think that our Air Force would look and it would feel so much differently if we acted that way, if we took it that seriously, if we knew how important our position is. Now, the only caveat there, the really big obstacle I think that we face goes back to identity. You said you were an E1, just, just as I was. E1s don't get paid very much. And you retired as a colonel? Is that what I remember? Pay difference was significant, right? <laughs> it really was. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And it's so easy yeah. for people to tie their identity, their, their value to a paycheck even. And in some ways, it makes sense. It makes logical sense. However, going back to the identity and purpose issue, that is outside of money, that's outside of a position, that's outside of anybody else. Now, if our leaders, well, you know what, George, let me ask you a question, because I know you've served a long time, wait far longer than me. Do you ever hear airmen, soldiers, sailors, do you ever hear talk, people talking about their management or their leadership? Uh, most folks talk about management. I very seldom hear people talk about leadership per se. Interesting. And, and the only reason I ask is because for my level, I only hear people talk about leadership, leadership this and leadership that. And I think it is because leadership is so important. Um, and we view the people above us as leaders, they should be leading. But what I will tell you is leading is only one of the functions of management. We have to plan, we have to organize, when we have to lead, and we have to reevaluate. So the, the actual functions of management are rather cyclical. But there's something uniquely special about leadership. Yeah, coming up through the ranks. See, you said, do I currently, right? See, coming up through the ranks, it was all about leadership, right? Every single, I'm telling you, everything, two things when I came to the military that they focused on in my training. One was everything was about war. The other, everything was about leadership. 
today, uh, when I hear conversations in, in, in a lot of these circles, uh, they talk more uh, in, in terms of how to manage people, how to manage their soldiers, right? So I think, in my view, based upon the most senior leaders within the confines of all the branches of the services, we got to go back to basic 101 Army, right? Basic 101 Air Force, I, 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 I believe. Right? I just, that's just, you know, kind of how I see things. We have a lot smarter force today. I mean, we really and truly do intellectually. That's just kind of how things should evolve into folks who are 21st century should be a lot smarter than those of us who came to the military, such as myself, right? So there are a lot of great things that we're doing within the confines of the military. And there are a lot of philosophies that we have, you know, surrounds itself with leadership. So uh, I want to see more leaders. I want to, you know, to see the military who, when they have someone that's actually in charge, allow for them to be in charge. If you don't trust that person to be in charge, then don't, don't put them in charge, right? Uh, I talk to drill sergeants all the time, and they feel as though their power, quote unquote, has been taken away from them. And, you know, I've, I've commanded multiple times, you know, multiple times in combat, as a matter of fact. And I always had folks that uh, I trusted to lead the soldiers. So I think it's incredibly important to make sure that when it comes to leadership, management, supervisory, we understand what those roles are. So I know a lot of folks would say, you know, what they're demonstrating is leadership, but I think it's more managing the assets that we actually have. And, and quite honestly, I understand, you know, when people say, uh, you know, in recruiting world today, and I was recruiting operations officer at one point. So they say we have a numbers problem within the confines of the military, holistically speaking. And, and I, don't, I don't see it that way. I don't think it's a numbers game. I think it's more of a leadership issue. Because if you have the right type of leadership, making the right type of decisions, doing the right type of things in which they try to get folks in, the numbers will take care of themselves. I mean, that's kind of how I did it. And that's how I actually made mission because I focused on purely the leadership aspect of it. I didn't worry about the numbers. The numbers took care of themselves when I took care of the people. I actually focused on making sure that folks understood that, you know, to be a part of this organization, you know, you're going to have to really, really be a high stepper, somebody that really wants to give 110%. And at our program uh, at Northwestern State University in Annapolis, uh, Louisiana, it was all about, always about leadership. We never made it easy. We made it very challenging. And we always superseded, you know, the mission set and the numbers because of that, that path. So I, I, I take care of your point very seriously. And I think that a lot of what you're saying is very true when it comes to the leadership aspect. What about this? Can, can you think of a time when failure made you question your path or your goals? And how did you navigate that? I know you said that, you know, early, you know, coming in initially, man, that you were focused on one job, but then you fellow blind, you, you know, focused on another. I mean, did you ever question, you know, from that point up into current, whether or not uh, you should have actually come in the Air Force at all, even though you wanted to serve? For several years, there was a point in time where I was I was going to serve my enlistment and get out. I was going to become a game warden or a state trooper in Texas, whichever would have me first. It was very frustrating. However, there was something that happened when I began doing everything that I did in any capacity, professionally speaking, just choosing to do it well, even if I didn't like it. Even if I disagreed with it, no matter what I did, I was going to do it well and respectably. I was going to commit still to follow the orders that were given to me, and I was going to do it well. And there was something that happened in that process where I discovered how rewarding it can be just to do a good job with the small things 
with the bigger things. And the more things I did well with the small, the more bigger things I was given. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, the folks that we bring in uh, today, I know a lot of people say that uh, the military has changed. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. And here's why. Uh, you know, for a number of years now, I have looked at the Army regulations. The Army re- regulations from when I actually came in, most of them are still in, t- in place, right? So that says to me that the framework and the structure itself hasn't changed. What has actually taken place is that in a lot of areas, we've lowered the standards to get those numbers. You know, there were, what was it? Uh, I don't know, about four or five months ago, there was uh, some talk that lasted about 24 hours of accepting people with, you know, no high school diplomas and none of that sort of stuff. I mean, come on, guys. You know, I, I understand the importance of actually having enough personnel to be able to go and fight and win our nation wars and defend our nation. But you can't lower the standards so low to you don't have educated people within the confines of the United States military. Everything that I've actually had to do from a private all the way up to a colonel is I had to read, right? And if you don't have an, uh, you know, an educated force in the 21st century, you're just going to have some serious challenges with that. So lowering the standards or having high standards, here's what I know about this to be true. Soldiers, airmen, Marines, you know, sailors, coasties, uh, uh, guardians, they're going to always meet the standards, whether those standards are high or low. So we need to get back to the point to where I, we don't have the situation where I had, I spoke to several privates you know, independently of one another in doing some research and tons of them. I mean, dude, I bet you about 10 of them were actually being chaptered out of the military. And in talking to these kids, and, and none of these kids knew each other. I was asking, I mean, independently, right? Like, why are you guys getting out of the military? You know, they were being processed out. And those kids said to me, initially, they tried to, you know, BS me, man, and, you know, give some excuses. I said, no, 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 I'm no soldiers, man. And I can look at you and tell that um, uh, you should be in the military. So I asked why, you know, four or five of them, why do you guys get out? And they said they failed the PT test. And I'm like, wait a minute. I can look at an individual and tell them they can pass the PT test most often, right? And I said, so you're getting kicked out. So nothing's going to happen to you. So just share with me why, you know, you failed your PT test. And they said to me is that they intentionally failed it so they could get kicked out. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense to me. They said that they, they were promised that when they came into the Army that they were going to have they were going to be part of an organization that made them better, that allowed for them to become all that they meant to be, right? And these kids said to me that that was not happening. They said that although they could have passed their PT test, they chose that they didn't want to be a part of an organization that didn't give them the time of day. They said that because they were squared away, they didn't get enough of the attention by which they wanted. They said they spent most of their time with troubled soldiers and folks who couldn't measure up and that sort of thing. And I just thought that was just tremendously heartbreaking. Right. Because in my day, I mean, that's just not it isn't just a, the opposite. Right. You know, the army uh, or the military is not always for everybody. But you need to be honest with those folks. So we don't need to lower the standards so low that we're just taking on anybody. I mean, and it's not speaking ill of our military. I love the military, but I also want to make sure that we have the best of the best of the best of the best of the confines of the United States military. That's just kind of who we should be. When you have the responsibility of protecting a nation, dude, you've got to get the best of the best of the best, right? And I'm not so sure that folks can honestly say that that's the case. Uh, you know, if they were being, you know, transparent and being honest, we'd have to go back, take a look at our frameworks and, and restart. And I know that we have the ability to do so. The issue is, do we have the will and the drive to do so? Because when we don't have the right 
folks out there leading them. We put our soldiers in jeopardy. Look, let me ask a couple more questions here. I know you got a, things you got to get done, but do you want to comment on that? I begin to think back on where leadership really starts, and it's with the first line supervisors. It's the people, it's the boots on the ground. It's not the commanders necessarily, because they have to deal with a whole slew of issues that most people don't even know about. Look, if I'm going to summarize it, being a leader or being a follower is merely a role. It is not who you are. It's what you do. And since you have been an E1 all the way to an O6, you were a follower in some capacity. I think that followership, true followership, is understated. The importance of it cannot be emphasized enough. And because it's not emphasized, I would place that responsibility on our leaders. Now, there are loads of different definitions from scholars on the, what leadership is, what makes a leader. Tons of different leadership models. But if I were to summarize it for you, it would be enabling and empowering your followers. That's what good leaders do. If you make it easy for people to do their job, they're going to really, really appreciate that. What those airmen and soldiers, those, those, the ones who are very discouraged, they don't feel like they can get anything done. They feel like there is an obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And it, more often than not, it's not an obstacle from the outside. It's an obstacle from within the organization. They don't feel supported, empowered, or enabled. Now, when that happens, when followers feel that way, they begin to reciprocate that and they begin empowering and enabling their leader. Something I think about uh, just in recent events, uh, I was involved in a major project at BAMSI and our colonel made a decision I disagreed with. I was able to voice this opinion, but he made the final decision. I was confident that I gave him all of the information that he needed and he was receiving more information from other individuals as well. And he made a decision that I, although I disagreed with, I respected. Now, what was so different about this individual is that he looked me in the eye and he said, I hear you, but for other reasons, I feel it's necessary to make this decision. So although it's rather a frustrating situation, I'm gonna make sure that he is enabled and supported and that his decision is going to be carried through. That only happened because of the respect that I have for him. Now, I'm not saying that if I didn't respect my commanding officer that I would disobey. I'm not even saying that. But I'm actually motivated to carry out his decision. I don't carry any bitterness or resentment. Or no, there's no personal issue there. When leaders begin empowering and enabling their followers to speak and to make decisions, that's also something called participative leadership things change. And what we're talking about, what you're talking about with uh, lowering the standards, it's a cultural issue. It's not so much an expectation issue. Everyone expects the job to be done. Everyone expects the airmen, soldiers, sailors will be developed, but they don't help them do it. There's no explanation on how to get the job done. It's just get it done. There's no explanation or guidance on how I expect you to develop. It's just you better develop yourself. And so again, it comes back down to the frontline supervisor to make sure the leadership directives are executed effectively. The last thing I'll say is to do that well, it takes an authentic person, someone who can admit when they're wrong, someone who will openly say, I need help. For instance, 
followers and leaders, I said those are two different roles. Can a leader accomplish an entire mission just by themselves, just one person? No. Can followers know where to go without a leader? Also no. We need each other. And we need to remember we're on the same team and we're in the same fight. And as far as war goes, there will be another fight and we better be ready for it. Totally. Look, you said some powerful stuff. I got chills for right now, Tex Horn. A couple of points here. I, I like the follower piece, right? You know, General Colin Powell, rest his soul, uh, I heard him give a speech one time and someone in the audience says, hey, sir, um, how do you know if you're a good leader? And General Powell, you know, who uh, you know, was an infantry guy, said that when he was at the infantry school at, at Fort Benning, you know, I, I was served there a couple of times. He said that when he was, uh, you know, a lieutenant, he said he learned all of his, he says that when he was there at Benning, he said, all of the leadership that he ever learned and, and needed within the confines of a foundational structure, he learned there at being as a um, uh, as an infantry guy. And he said that this person in the audience, and, and he was retired at this point, Secretary of State, uh, when this question was posed to him, and uh, you know, she basically says, "Hey, look, how do you know if you're a good leader?" And he said his mind went back to uh, where when his platoon sergeant said that, you know, "Hey, Lieutenant, you will know that you are a good leader when people follow you." if only out of curiosity, right? So I've always tried to lead in a way where people are always curious about, you know, what is this guy up to? What is he actually doing? Why is he actually doing those kind of things, right? Because I wanted to not only have folks who were physically fit, you know, and mentally, you know, fit, but folks who were curious about our military, folks who were curious about what leadership is, folks who are curious about wanting to lead the soldiers, folks who are curious about how do I become all that I am supposed to be, uh, even the confines of the military. So the, the follower piece was incredibly important. And I've followed some amazing people throughout my career. I've led some, but I've definitely you know, been a huge follower. And I love what you said when you, um, and some folks would consider it a challenge when you uh, broached the, you know, your, your, your commander and you know, gave a difference of opinion, a difference of opinion. And Look, I've done that a thousand times if I've done it once. I've always respected my leaders, but I've always done this. I've always told them what they need to know as opposed to what they want to hear, right? Some folks want to hear stuff, you know, that makes it makes them, you know, it sounds good. I, I was just never that way. And I know that a lot of that had to do with the way in which I was trained, you know, as a non-commissioned officer and a private and all that sort of stuff. But I just, it always worked well for me. And when I was in command or any jobs I've had, I've always told people to tell me what I need to know, not what you think I want to hear, because there are certain things that we've got to get done. And just trying to smooch up to me is just not going to cut it. I don't trust folks like that because you will tell folks whatever they want to hear and it's just not good. So it's important. The other thing is that that relates to when the conversation you were having with your commander is that I've always said this, everybody needs to be heard, but everyone doesn't need to be listened to. You know, folks, that's a contradiction, isn't it? No, it's not. Everybody needs to have a voice, right? I'm okay with listening. I mean, I'm okay with, with talking and hearing and allowing people to have a voice in the right settings, but I'm not going to listen to everybody, right? Folks can say what their opinions are, but that opinion may or may not have anything to do with the decision that I make based upon the information that I have, based upon the missions that we're trying to accomplish. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't you know, hear them. I think it's important, especially if we're in war. It's important for folks to be able to have their opinions heard because they're, dude, they're freaking out. They're afraid. They're, you know, they don't know what's going to happen. So hear them, but you don't always have to listen to them, right? I think that's very, very important. Now, the last question is this. You know, you know, failure is a huge issue for me in terms of trying to make it positive. So that's why I call this podcast, you know, failure is not the problem. 
So the, the, does your organization or the people that you work with or the folks that you surround yourself with, do they make it safe or okay to fail? I think I've been very fortunate that in my entire career, I've never been penalized for failing. If there was a failure on the individual level or the unit's level, it was followed up by questions instead of punishments. Now, unless they were deliberate failures because of disobedience or some egregious issue, but they were followed up by questions. Why did it fail? What is causing that? What's preventing us from getting the job done? What is preventing us from making sure this happens? Those were the pain points. So I, I, I think about Thomas Edison. He, he said that he, he didn't fail. He just found 10,000 different ways that it won't work. So when we have organizations who look at failure as perhaps a, an alarm, like, hey, there's something wrong here. And they look at it with more of a, an attitude of how to fix it. I think that people would much rather step up and say, hey, this isn't working. And this is why and to give their leaders all of, the, all of the information they need to make the best decision. Uh, I'm glad you answered it that way, because that's in line and in keeping with my experience also, right? Uh, the military never, ever, ever, ever punished me uh, when I failed at anything. I mean, it just didn't. They gave me opportunities to get better, to get wiser, to get stronger. That's how they used that failure. So they made, the military has always made it safe or okay to fail. You know, the objective was not failure, unless, of course, we were at an obstacle course where they set it up, and there were two ways in which the obstacle course was going to shape out. One is that they, they had one where you were, there was a definite answer and, you know, where you could solve this, this challenge on that obstacle course. But they also set it up to where there was no way in which it was going to be achieved. And they wanted to look at both. And one is that, okay, got it. You guys accomplished the mission. Outstanding. Let's celebrate. The other, where it was not um, achievable, is they wanted to see how we were going to respond and what our mindsets were, and how we were going to deal with the failure piece and that sort of stuff. So it gave us an opportunity to, when we set back, we did the AARs. But you are absolutely right. There are organizations and folks and, and leaders who will penalize people, you know, when they don't get it right. And it's not always about getting it right, right? Sometimes it is depending on what's going on, but it's really about learning from those failures. We don't go about accomplishing the task. So my experience has been this, is that when you don't, when people feel safe and they know that it's okay to fail sometimes, they become, you know, more creative. Uh, they become, you know, more willing to tell people what they need to know as opposed to what they want to hear. Uh, they become a lot more motivated because they know that they're not going to have to worry about being stressed out over, you know, a mission that they may not accomplish and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's incredibly important to make sure that we make it safe and okay for folks to fail, not to revel in failure. But to really be okay, because that one issue in terms of me uh, feeling supported when I failed in the military allowed for me to, exhort, to go from being a private in the Army to being a colonel in the Army. I mean, it was incredibly important to be able to, to do that. And I learned this lesson when I was a, a private in basic training. And I'd gone to the weapons qualification range. And you, I'm sure just like I, maybe not, I don't know, but I'll say it anyway, is that I hunted and fished my whole life in East Texas. So I could fire a weapon system, no issues. But I went to the weapons qualification range and boloed twice. And I went back to the barracks at night and moping around and that sort of thing. Uh, this big old 6'3", 245-pound man, you know, stood over me and asked me, what is your problem, private? And uh, I said to him that I failed the weapons qualification range. I talked about a lot of the failure I'd had. 
And he said something to me that day that resonates with me throughout my entire career and presently. He says, look, Private, failure is not the problem. It's how you respond to that failure. Look, this has been fun. Um, I wanted to bring on, I wanted to bring you on because you're a frontline leader, because I want those frontline leaders out there, uh, those folks who are in uniforms and, and maybe out of uniform, they've gotten past it and retired. I wanted them to hear uh, from someone who is out there in the grind every single day trying to prepare our sailors, our airmen, our Marines, our Coast Guardsmen, our soldiers, you know, for the future, because our future, our national security relies strictly with folks like Tech Sergeant Ashby, our frontline leaders. And I just thought it was incredibly important to have you on today. I'm so proud and so thankful that you decided to um, uh, come online and uh, give us some words of wisdom. So what I'll do, as I often do, is I'll give uh, the guests uh, the last opportunity to just give us um, uh, some words of wisdom, uh, if there's any way they want to, uh, to contact you and that sort of thing, uh, or speaking engagements, or just coming down and and having a good time and showing them what right looks like, man. I just want to give you that option of doing something. Absolutely. If I was going to leave you with anything, it would be this. Whatever you do, do it well. If you are in charge of anybody, make sure that anyone that you're leading has all of the information they need to know. The more information, not all, but the more information that I've been able to share with my troops, the more confidence that they've had in me and the more motivated they've been to do what I've asked. We're taking care of people. This isn't just managing. We are taking care of people. You have to take care of yourself first. I know it's really hard as a tech sergeant, staff sergeant, you name it. It's really hard because we are so busy doing things for other people. But don't forget about you. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, look here. When it comes to, to leadership, it is so incredibly important to remember that, you know, to be the leader that um, uh, you are destined to be and uh, are capable of being, I think there are some things that we can, we can actually do. I know there are some things I did. So here's some of the things that you can do that, that I did is, look, when it comes to um, uh, leadership, recognize people for the great work they are doing. You know, reward those folks. They're, they're, they're good people. They're, they're working really hard to, to accomplish and to support the mission. Learn how to communicate effectively and not just talk at your team. It's so important, you know, not just talking to folks, but talking to and with them. Have the ultimate respect for your team, even when you do not like them or agree with them. It's about leadership, not likership. You know, by the way, they don't have to like you either, right? But however, uh, respect for one another is paramount. You know, mutual respect is incredibly important. Uh, you know, for me, as I hope it is for you, is that, you know, learn how to give you know, appropriate feedback, not shaming or blaming or complaining when things don't always go according to plan. Uh, character and integrity are key essentials to leading effectively. And here's another thing you can do. You can always reach out to me uh, to come and coach you. Look, if you want to reach out to me, you can do so by going to uh, George at georgeamilton.com. I'll say again, George at georgeamilton.com. You can also look at my uh, my website to see what's actually going on there. Contact me through there. And that's www.georgeamilton.com. And I also have uh, written a couple of books. One is entitled Failure is Not the Problem. This is the beginning of your success. And uh, that includes a workbook and a journal uh, that can be found on Amazon, along with Failure is Not the Problem. It's your leadership. Look here, I want to thank this first line leader, Tech Sergeant Ashby here, one each. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, Tech Sergeant. And uh, I'm George A. Milton, America's Failure Coach.
another episode down, guys. See you on the other side. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Failure is Not the Problem podcast. If you enjoy what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at georgeamilton.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side.